There's nothing like your podcast selection. The topics and banter make for the complete driving experience. Kind of like Goodyear Auto Service. They offer full service car service. Whatever comes your way, they're ready with a lot of know-how and some friendly tips to help keep you moving. Keep the podcast flowing and your car going with Goodyear Auto Service. For all-around car care, visit GoodyearAutoService.com. Welcome back to Pod Save the World. I'm Tommy Vitor. I'm Ben Rhodes. Ben, long time no see. How you doing? Just been a couple days. Uh, feels like a while ago, though. The uh, the coup sorted itself out a little bit faster than than people thought. Yeah, the coup kind of tapered out quickly. Although there's some weird stuff still happening that I think we'll we will get to today. So you know, folks who don't know what we're talking about, we recorded a special episode on Saturday about this ongoing Wagner insurrection that was happening in Russia. Today we're going to talk about the latest news there. We'll also talk about the latest on Ukraine's counteroffensive, this jaw-dropping new audio tape of Trump <laughs> leaking classified information in the most brazen way possible. Uh, we're going to talk about India exporting its attacks on journalists to the United States, whether Chinese President Xi Jinping is a dictator, the sinking of a boat off the coast of Greece that killed hundreds of migrants, news from Israeli Prime Minister Bibi Netanyahu's corruption trial, uh, and presidential candidate Francis Suarez shows his foreign policy chops <laughs> Ben uh, and then I just talked with a reporter named Evan Novi Williams from Sportico. It's a great uh, news outlet that covers business and sports together. They had the scoop uh, about Qatar, their sovereign wealth fund, buying a piece of three DC-based professional sports teams. And uh, great interview, Ben. But I think sports washing is winning the battle, man. Yeah, I mean, you know, we have a pretty good track record of uh, being slightly obsessed with both sports washing and the Wagner Group over the last couple years in this podcast. So. Not sure what that says about us, but uh, at least we're close to the zeitgeist. <laughs> yeah, yeah, some 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 sort of nerdy Cassandra yes, yeah, yeah, vibes exactly. going on. Um, well, two quick things before we get to the news. So, pre-sale tickets to our upcoming Pods of America shows are available to the subscription community. Go to crooked.com/friends if you want to join. And a big thank you again to the uh, subscribers who send in questions about Russia that we used in the episode we released on Saturday. Great questions, really helped us uh, produce the show. Also, do not miss our excellent podcast, Dreamtown, the story of Adelanto. It's about weed, corruption, money, and the FBI. There's all kinds of crazy twists and turns. The story includes uh, appearances by Mike Tyson and a Russian oligarch, Ben. So right up your alley. Uh, <laughs> yeah, seriously. <laughs> find Dreamtown, the story of Adelanto, wherever you get your podcast. That'd be a fun video game. Mike Tyson's punch out with oligarchs. Yeah, it's like a, that could be like the hangover before. <laughs> That's right. That's good. Um, all right, let's go to Russia because, you know, on Saturday we released this episode about the mutiny that was unfolding. This oligarch named uh, Yevgeny Prigozhin seemingly lost his mind, started marching 25,000 heavily armed private militia members towards Moscow. This was the Wagner group. Prigozhin eventually stood down after taking a call from Alexander Lukashenko, the president of Belarus, who offered him exile and amnesty for his fighters. On Moscow, Belarusian state media reported that Prigozhin had arrived there. He's in Minsk now, I guess. After initially seeming to flee Moscow for St. Petersburg, Russian President Vladimir Putin came out of hiding. He did two heavily scripted little media events where he denounced the mutiny, called Prigozhin a traitor, and held a moment of silence for the Russian military pilots killed in the fighting with Wagner forces. The Wagner guys shot down, I think, a couple helicopters. Pretty intense stuff. Um, Putin also announced that 
the Russian state had been funding the Wagner Group. Uh, that is interesting because until very recently, almost everyone involved with Wagner basically denied its existence. Prigozhin used to sue people for reporting on his connections with Wagner. Then it seems increasingly likely that this whole ordeal was not about a Russian military airstrike on Wagner forces, but rather the result of Prigozhin feeling squeezed out of power from Putin's inner circle, in particular by this Russian defense ministry order that by the end of June, all Wagner forces would have to sign a contract with the Ministry of Defense pledging allegiance to the Russian military leadership. Uh, Putin supported this plan. The plan basically would have stripped away all of Prigozhin's power and gave it to his arch enemy, uh, Sergei Shoigu, the defense minister. So Ben, I I'm curious why you think Putin came out and made this announcement about Russia paying the Wagner group. And if there's any other development since we talked Saturday that you think jumped out at you or felt particularly relevant. Well, I think what's clear is that there's this effort now to kind of rewrite the narrative of what happened by Putin. Um, and so after this deal was announced, you know, shortly before our last podcast, there was this kind of 24 hours where there wasn't much information. Everybody's kind of quiet. Everybody's kind of in duck and cover mode. And then over the course of the last 24 hours, we've seen Putin come out with these statements. We've seen uh, Alexander Lukashenko, uh, the person who was kind of in the middle of I don't know, negotiating this or at least being the front man for uh, the deal that was struck between Prigozhin and the Russians, uh, give like a multi-hour <laughs> press conference about... Uh, Max said, said it was eight hours. I don't know if he was kidding or not, <laughs> no, but it was like, it looked brutal. It wasn't quite that long, but you know, it had, had some serious like Sasha Baron Cohen uh, dictator yeah. vibes there. But, but look, I, I think what... So what can we learn from the narrative that Putin's trying to put out and what do we think happened? I mean, I think what we can learn from the narrative Putin's trying to put out is he's trying to signal... I'm in charge of all this. I was never really in any peril. I've been in charge all along of the Wagner group. I was the guy paying their bills. Uh, I was in charge of this plan to kind of absorb them and integrate them into the Ministry of Defense. Uh, sure, it got a little bumpy there for, you know, the mutiny and military rebellion that the whole world saw for 24 to 48 hours, but kind of nothing to see there, nothing to worry about. Prigozhin, he's a traitor. He's kind of on the outs. He's in Minsk. Um, and, and we're just moving forward. And I, I see, and that's kind of the narrative that, you know, apparently is kind yeah. of filtering out through Russian state television. There's a real problem with it, Tommy. I didn't pause on this. Um, and you and I were texting about this, but, you know, as someone had to kind of do cable news too, like there's some people zagging. Uh, after all the kind of hyperventilating about the coup, some people are like, well, maybe this, you know, wasn't that bad for Putin. And maybe, you know, look, this doesn't happen in normal countries. You know? Like be good. Nobody, nobody's marched on Washington or Beijing or you know any large uh, functioning country for that matter in recent years. Uh, and so the bottom line is that Putin's been trying to run this model for a long time that we've talked about where he's got the military, but then he's got Wagner guys and he's got the Kadyrov and the Chechens and you know he's got all these different armed fiefdoms that, you know, when there wasn't a full-scale war, that kind of worked for him because he could use Wagner for some things and he could use the military for others. Mm -hmm. And not the right hand didn't always know what the left hand knew, was doing, but Putin always knew everything. Well, now, like, that model has kind of failed in Ukraine. Uh, you know, the Wagner guys were on the front lines and, and they were resenting the MOD. The MOD guys probably didn't like the fact that um, you know, there's Prigozhin taking shots at them all the time on Telegram. You had these kind of far-right bloggers that kind of started to go in the Prigozhin camp. And mm -hmm. it, it, it was just kind of some chaos. And so they're trying to get yeah. their arms around this. They're trying to absorb Wagner. I think the, the core question here is, very quickly, number one, what's the future of Prigozhin? 
He's apparently going to get a military base in Belarus. That seems odd that he'd just be hanging out there, like, right yeah, across sure. the yeah, border. Let's see if that happens. Number two, do the Wagner guys actually integrate into the Russian military? Uh, it seems like the better fighters in Wagner, not the kind of cannon fodder convict guys, don't really want to do that. They have a chip on their shoulder, too. Um, so do they lose that fighting force? Do they lose some manpower? Any manpower is going to be a blow to them if it's taken off the battlefield. And then to what extent has Putin's prestige been cut down a notch here? Not just inside of Russia, but globally. Um, what does this mean for other people in that system? Oligarchs, generals, corrupt guys uh, who might have their own you know, daydream plan in their head for a military rebellion down the road. Uh, bottom line is, I think, there's some chaos here that Putin's trying to paper over, and this doesn't look great for him. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think it was David Remnick had a great piece in The New Yorker about when Putin first came into politics, he seemed like a normal guy. He kind of spoke like a gangster. He sounded like someone who like came off the streets, and that made him relatable, which was a sharp contrast with these like decrepit, like literally rotting away Soviet leaders. Now it seems like Prigozhin's more the man of the people. He is literally on the front lines recording these videos. He's talking more honestly about the war. He's recruiting in prisons, even though and he was once a convict. He's getting treated like a celebrity, right? Everyone knows who he is. They're cheering for him. Um, and as you said, he's also tight with this new generation of military bloggers who are key sources of information about the war for many Russians. Meanwhile, Putin's sitting in these same conference rooms with the same handful of advisors. He rarely leaves. His propagandists on like RT, the state propaganda networks, were all cheering for Prigozhin like five days ago. Now they have to turn on him, but they also have to explain why he seems to be getting this kind of sweetheart deal and barely being punished. Like, I don't know, like to your point, it's a very delicate dance that Putin is doing here, and I'm not sure it's really achievable. Yeah, it's a good point from the Remnick piece. And if people want to check out some of the background on Putin's rise to power, we have a good episode in Another Russia. Um, the podcast I did with John and Msova, it's kind of about the origin story of, of Putin. Um, and the thing there is, to, to, to your point, Putin was criticizing the conduct of the war in Chechnya. Um, you know, the, the, the Russians have been bogged down in this province, breakaway yep. province of Chechnya. And Putin was criticizing politicians and he said he was going to go kill all the Chechens on, on literally like he was going to kill them on the shitter. Like that that's actually something he said. And so he sounded like Prigozhin in these yeah. Uh, yeah. Telegram videos. And there is something kind of eerie where now Putin's the establishment. He's got the war that's not going well. Uh, and now you've got guys like Prigozhin taking shots, including shots about the fact that the whole war doesn't make any sense, not just the conduct of the war. And here's the thing. None of us know exactly what it's like uh, to live in a totalitarian society like Russia, where there's such information controlled by the state. I have to think when the narratives change like continually, <laughs> that adds up. There's only so much weight you can put on just, you know, one day this guy, it's like, 1984, right? We're at war with one country one day, and then the next day they pretend like that never happened. Right. I mean, Prigozhin's a hero one day, then he's a mutineer. You know, uh, like the, the you know the, this was uh, he was going to be detained and he was going to be thrown in prison one day, and then the next day he's like in Minsk and hanging out there. Like they, there are all these shifts in their own narrative that they're telling themselves, and meanwhile people are just dying by the thousands in Ukraine. It's only 16 months into the war. It feels like forever because like, we're just not accustomed to wars of this scale. But how long can he sustain not just these casualties, but this dysfunction in his own system and these kind of changing stories that he tells his own people? I really do think this guy just is 
he's lost his fastball. You know, he doesn't look strong. He doesn't look like he's not. It's, this story he's telling isn't entirely believable. Uh, there's clearly more to it. Um, if he lets Progosian live, um, well, then he looks kind of weak because he, you know, usually kills people like that or they have accidents and they fall off balconies. But if he kills Progosian, I don't know that like he's killing the guy who was commanding the forces that took Bakhmut. Like he, there's not like a winning yeah. play for him here, you know? Yes, yeah, so who seems popular. Uh, ben, speaking of uh, narratives, there was a, a readout I saw of the Lukashenko Progosian call <laughs> that was according to the director of the National Library of Belarus. Here's the quote. They immediately blurted out such vulgar things that would make any mother cry. The conversation was hard. And as I was told, masculine. <laughs> that, that was an incredible readout. <laughs> a, 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 like a, a little dose of toxic masculinity when Prigozhin uh, oh, yeah. and, and Lukashenko, I guess those are phone calls, not Zooms. Dude, that'd be even funnier if they're like, you know, Zooming or video yeah. calling each other. Yeah, because <laughs> Prigozhin looks like a vampire from a black and white movie. And Lukashenko also... looks like a B-list oligarch buffoon. You oh, know? yeah terrible mustache and all. We (laughs) also learned that U.S. intelligence apparently knew in advance that Prigozhin was plotting this uprising. Um, They very quickly leaked that out uh, so they weren't accused of an intelligence failure. But it it does sound like the U.S. has had the Wagner group kind of wired for a very long time. We know that thanks to the Discord leaks, but it was interesting to see that out there. And then President Biden at the same time being like, this was an internal problem within the Russian system. However, you're reading these stories about U.S. intelligence knowing about it. Yeah. And I mean, look, some of that is like the Wagner guys, including Prigozhin, were saying this stuff on Telegram, kind of threatening this. But clearly they, they, they must have seen more advanced planning. Like it seemed like the Wagner guys were like hoarding more advanced weapons and, and preparing to do this. And moving stuff Moving around, stuff yeah. around. Uh, but I, I, I don't know. There, there wasn't much utility in narrating this thing because I don't think anybody, no. including Pagosian, knew where it was going. An important question that I, 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 the U.S. intelligence community, I'm sure, is thinking about is that they've said now that they're going to try to absorb Wagner guys into the Russian military in this fight in Ukraine. What about all these Wagner guys that are hanging out in Syria and yeah, the question. Central African Republic and Mali? Uh, you know, they're all they have a pretty big footprint globally. And I'm I'm genuinely curious whether those people even can like what do they get absorbed to? Do they get absorbed into the Russian military, the the the, the FSB? Then what does that mean for them? I think Putin liked the cutout, right? Of having, you know, it's one thing to have a mercenary force in Central African Republic, you know, running mines and the security for the president of that country. What happens if you're saying, well, now these guys are in the Russian military? Does that mean the Russian yeah. military is occupying the Central African Republic? So there's a lot of open questions here about the future of Wagner and this infrastructure that Putin's built. That who's running the election interference in 2024? You know, like, we you know, Wagner usually yeah. ran the, the troll farms and the disinformation campaigns. Or is someone else going to be in charge of, like, attacking Joe Biden and helping Donald Trump in the next time around? So we'll, we'll see. Yeah, he's going to need ZipRecruiter. Before we go, (laughs) I do think it's important to point out how Fox News is covering all of this. Here's a quick clip. The White House wanted to give the media something else to cover. And this is the M.O. This is exactly the way they do things. In fact, on Friday, I said, wow, what a blockbuster WhatsApp message. I'm sure there will be an enormous story over the weekend that the White House is going to be pushing to take this story off of the front page. And sure enough, we've got the State Department drumming up all the drama that took place over the weekend in Russia. So I don't know if it's going to break through. The mainstream media has has an excuse again not to cover it. They're covering everything about Russia and the Wagner Group. That was uh, Maria Bartiromo. 
uh, just living in her little conspiratorial world where we just pull the the Wagner Group mutiny uh, lever, and that's how you distract from, I, I assume, like a Hunter Biden thing. Yeah, I don't even know what she's talking that's about. That's what, the, like, there's so many things that are crazy about that, including the fact that that could just be living in some Russian-created conspiracy theory. But it, it's also, like, I think it's Hunter Biden's taxes or something. And and to be so insane to as to believe that whatever weird thing that they're obsessed about with, like, Hunter Biden and his, like, plea deal or his laptop... Uh, from several years ago, that that somehow that story is more important than like twenty five thousand dudes like shooting down Russian military helicopters and taking over cities in Russia and marching on the Kremlin. Like that, that's a strange world that they're living in, man. Uh, that's a br- broken brain. I, you know, there's the five the five milligram edibles, the ten. Sometimes you can push it up to twenty. Like I don't know what she's taking. Like she's going pretty. Yeah, high. she's taking she's taking the RFK Junior brand edibles. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, she's just fucking whacked out, she, brain she, leaking, five G Wi Fi. She's doing those heavy MDMA <laughs> doses. You know, I don't know what the fuck is going on there. <laughs> yeah, be careful with those. You don't want to take too many. Uh, before we move on, we should quickly talk about the Ukrainian counteroffensive because it does seem clear now that this brief insurrection did not change anything in terms of the military situation. Most of the Wagner forces were already off the battlefield before they like half-heartedly stormed Moscow. But, you know, most analysts agree, I think, Ben, by now, that it's like we're like two weeks in. The the counteroffensive has been incredibly challenging. I think it's going a little slower and a little worse than the Ukrainians had hoped. Um, remember that Ukraine is basically trying to push down from the Zaporizhia region to the Sea of Azov, which would cut off supply lines from Russia to Crimea. Uh, but the Russians have had a lot of time to, to prepare, to lay down mines, to fortify their defensive positions. And they have air superiority, which makes attacking very, very hard for Ukraine. So difficult fighting. They've also lost a decent chunk of hardware, apparently like something like 10% of the Bradley fighting vehicles that we, the US gave them. Those are those like little mini tank things that carry around uh, infantry troops. So long story short, Things are going a little worse than Ukraine would like. But again, the counteroffensive is just getting started. Uh, Mike Kaufman, who's a very smart military analyst who's quoted everywhere on this stuff, pointed out that during last year's Ukrainian offensive, when they made massive breakthroughs and took back like insane amounts of territory, they were also behind schedule at this stage, like roughly two weeks into it. So just way, way too soon to declare it's over, even if you're uh, the former interim Zenefits CEO and really know your stuff. (laughs) You mean like the uh, generals running Twitter these days? Um, The Silicon Valley generals. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the PayPal generals. Um, (laughs) Kind of like as qualified as uh, being a hot dog vendor in St. Petersburg, though, I guess, Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. without the 30 years of uh, subsequent uh, mercenary and disinformation operations that Prigozhin You're not wrong. But if you look at the, it's a good point. And, you know, we should bear in mind that the real breakthroughs last time happened for them around like September, you know. Um, So we'll see if they can wear down the Russians. I think what is, you know, undeniably the case is that the Russians have kind of defensively fortified their positions. And so the question is, what's going to prevail? Is it going to be the advanced weaponry that has been provided to the Ukrainians uh, and their capacity to kind of figure out a strategy for retaking territory? Or is it going to be the kind of defensive posture that the Russians have now taken because they've, you know, they don't say it, but they must have given up on trying to take Kiev and are, are just focused on holding what they've got? And I think we'll see. I think this is something where people should not be drawing major conclusions until the fall. Yeah, agreed. Uh, Okay, let's switch to President Trump, because we've talked a lot on the show about how he stole classified information, brought it to Mar-a-Lago, and then lied and obstructed justice when the Department of Justice tried to get the documents back. It seemed clear, Ben 
from the indictment that Trump might be in some big trouble. But then last night, CNN published some audio that made me reconsider my opinion on this whole thing. Let's listen. He said he wanted to attack Iran and what? He's in the papers. This was done by the military, given to me. Uh, I think we can probably. I don't know. We'll, we'll have to see. Yeah, we'll have to try to figure out a, a yeah. See, as president, I could have declassified yeah. it. Now I can't, you know, but this is yeah, classified. Now, now we have a problem. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. It's so yeah. cool. And you probably almost didn't believe me, but now you believe me. No, it's, I believe it's you. It's incredible, right? No. They, hey, bring they some, uh, bring some Cokes in, please. That's my favorite part of the video. Is he's like, uh, bring some cokes in, please. <laughs> I like it. I like it when he's like, "This is so cool," you know, like his this is so cool. Seven year old showing his like Legos to his friend, you know. Who, who is this idiot like goading him on? <laughs> I don't know. I, it's either like a complete fucking moron, or it's like some some genius at drawing him out into crimes, <laughs> getting him to say like, "I could have declassified it, but I didn't, so it's secret. I shouldn't be doing this. I'm guilty." I mean, you know, we're no lawyers, but like he is screwed. I, I mean, like this is secret. I can't. De- classify it. It's off the record. That's not going to help you, pal. How do you defend that? And just to kind of add a couple other angles to this, first of all, when he says, like, as president, I could have declassified this. No, he couldn't have. Like, there's, he actually has, like, a poor understanding of this. Like, you can't declassify future war plans. Like, that that has never happened in the history of the United States. I mean, technically, could he make an argument that somehow he could do that when he was president? Like, this clearly won't count as an argument now. Like, uh, maybe, but, like, he just doesn't... The fact that he was president of the United States for four years and doesn't understand the difference between, like, some intelligence document and, like, an active war plan for a future scenario, that that that's just another crazy component of this. Another piece is, like, his weird obsession with Iran and what I've... Like, th- there's a pretty good... We, we You played the Brett Baer clip, like, a week ago, where Brett Baer is kind of like, how come you hired all these people who think you're a fucking moron? Like the question I have for Donald Trump too to add to this is like, how come you hired all these people that desperately want to go to war with Iran and then are like shocked that that might have almost happened? Because literally at the end of his administration, he had lunatics over at the Defense Department. He had Mike Pompeo, like a, a guy who's been you know trying to start a war with Iran for a while. Um, he had people all over his administration who had you know, taking the bait of like leaving the Iran nuclear deal, making a war more likely, like everything Donald Trump did as president kept bringing us to the precipice of a war with Iran. And then he's like shocked that the military even has like a plan for that war. <laughs> like like it, there's such like internal, like illogic in, in how he approached that whole issue. Um, and, and to think that he was like somehow outing the military by revealing they had a war plan the military like spoiler alert has war plans for like everything like that's what they do they turn out contingency plans for all kinds of shit in the pentagon like what does he think yeah. they do over there you know it's it's just nonsense although he uh, someone just sent me uh he was asked about it he went out and i think fox news digital asked about it and this reporter's like you're not concerned about these audio tapes with your own voice on them and he's like my voice sounded fine <laughs> what, what's the problem what did i say we had lots of papers stacked up you could hear them rustling i'm a legitimate like it's just he is just flailing it is complete nonsense he knows he is screwed it's crazy and like again just to hit the sensitivity of this everything in that plan 
would be like incredibly sensitive. Like, what do we know about where the Iranian nuclear program is? What kind of weapons and, 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 and hardware would we use as a part of an attack plan? What kind of countries would we ask yeah, for permissions? I mean, like, this is the most sensitive shit imaginable in the U.S. government. He's just like, I shouldn't be showing this, but here I am. He's just a fucking Tweeting idiot. Tweeting it out. You know, yeah. Just... Tweeting it all out. <laughs> Tweet through a pal. We love you. What's the defense, though? Like, if you're his lawyer, like, there what, are you, what, what are you even saying? They're going to delay and try to get it thrown out, and he's just screwed. I, I don't know. Look, we'll find out. We'll find out. But it's it's just incredible. Why don't we take a quick break? When we come back, we'll talk about Prime Minister Modi and press freedom and whether or not Xi Jinping is a dictator. So stick around for that. Pod Save the World is brought to you by the UN Refugee Agency. The UN Refugee Agency, or UNHCR, responds to emergencies and provides long-term solutions for refugees. They provide aid in over 130 countries, including Ukraine, Syria, Afghanistan, and Sudan, where people are forced to flee from war and persecution at their greatest moment of need. UNHCR helps and protects refugees by providing food, shelter, medical care, and other life-saving essentials. The agency jumpstarts relief in three key ways. They transport core relief items stored in even the most remote areas of the world. They deploy expert emergency staff trained to help in crisis situations, and they transfer funds directly to support the emergency. Because of generous supporters and donors, UNHCR can scale up its response within 72 hours of a large-scale emergency. Your support helps provide life-saving aid for refugees whenever and wherever emergencies occur. Donate to USA for UNHCR by visiting unrefugees.org slash donation. That's unrefugees.org slash donation. It's 2024. We're facing another presidential election with huge stakes. You want to help. You don't know where your money will actually make a difference or how to figure that out. Ensure you love to take an edible and not think about it, but you can't because you do care. Let Vote Save America make it easy for you with their new anxiety relief program. Here's how it works. You set up a monthly recurring donation at the level that feels right for you, and Vote Save America will send 100% of it to the grassroots organizations and down-ballot races that need it most. Then, at the end of the month, they'll tell you where your dollars went. That's it. Set it and forget it. Vote Save America has already raised $52,000 in monthly recurring donations. Love it. That's great. From over 1,000 amazing, sustaining donors who've signed up and trusted Vote Save America to make their dollar go further. But we still have a long way to go, and Vote Save America needs your help to get there. Sign up at votesaveamerica.com and enjoy your edible. <laughs> Legal disclaimer, paid for by Vote Save America, votesaveamerica.com, not authorized by any candidate or candidate's committee. Did you know that women make up 56% of law students? That's grounds for bragging rights at the dinner table for your conservative uncle who still thinks women belong in the kitchen. It's clear that the future of the legal field is female. So why are so many legal podcasts and reviews authored by men? Hi, I'm Leah Littman. I'm Kate Shaw. And with Melissa Murray, we are the hosts of Strict Scrutiny. Each week, we break down the latest headlines and biggest legal questions facing our country through the lens of diverse voices to give you expert views you won't hear anywhere else. Strict Scrutiny is your guide to the Supreme Court. New episodes drop every Monday, plus bonuses whenever the Supreme Court takes away another one of our rights. Make sure to subscribe to Strict Scrutiny wherever you get your podcasts. Last week, President Biden welcomed uh, Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi to the White House for a state dinner. Modi also addressed a joint session of Congress. India, obviously, is a huge economy. The Biden team wants their support on a bunch of issues, uh, the war in Ukraine, competition with China, et cetera, et cetera. But a lot of people, as we talked about, Ben, 
were pissed that Modi was getting the royal treatment when he fans the flames of Hindu nationalism and doesn't seem to be a big fan of freedom of religion or freedom of speech when it comes from his critics. Luckily for us, the White House press corps got to ask Modi a few questions about his record. Here's what Sabrina Siddiqui from the Wall Street Journal asked Modi. Mr. Prime Minister, India has long prided itself as the world's largest democracy, but there are many human rights groups who say that your government has discriminated against religious minorities and sought to silence its critics. Um, as you stand here in the East Room of the White House, where so many world leaders have made commitments to protecting democracy, what steps are you and your government willing to take to improve the rights of Muslims and other minorities in your country and to uphold free speech? So Modi's answer, Ben, was just like deny everything and to say pablum like democracy is in our DNA. Democracy is our spirit. Democracy runs in our veins. But what happens next, I think, really shows his true colors. There has been a relentless campaign of harassment against Sabrina ever since she asked this question, both online and in pro-Modi news outlets. Even official BJP, his party's spokespeople, have jumped in on the act and attacked her. They've attacked her for having a, a Pakistani mother. They called her a bigot. They tried to claim she's not a regular or real White House reporter and that was actually a secret plant by the, the White House to embarrass Modi. So just for the record, that is obviously nonsense. Like Sabrina's a great reporter. She literally accompanied Biden to Ukraine like four months ago, was the pool reporter on that major trip. So she's like hardly a new face in the briefing room. But the irony of these idiots doing this in response to a question about Modi's yeah. government <laughs> going after religious freedom or free speech, like still makes your head spin, Ben. Modi's allies also went after President Obama for talking about the need to respect the rights of Muslims in India. So, Ben, the, the White House condemned this harassment. But, like, do you think that his people understand how much worse they make things when they do shit like this? Does it even, like, compute? It's an interesting thing to watch because I obviously watched the Sabrina piece of this and also the Obama piece because Obama said that they need to treat the Muslim minority better. And he also kind of tried to make an argument like from India's perspective, like a big, diverse country like this, it risks instability. It risks, you know, you know, uh, yeah. real problems if, if you're persecuting a massive minority of like a couple hundred million people, which is how, how many, you know, there's a huge, it's one of the largest populations of, of Muslims in any country in the world in India. To me... It makes him look utterly ridiculous because all he has to say is, you know, even if because first of all, like it's true, they they treat like the Muslim minority has been singled out. It has been you've got look. We talked on the show, like his chief political opponent, who's not Muslim, Rahul Gandhi, like they're trying to convict the guy. They've got journalists yeah. in prison. The BJP, his party and the RSS movement that like sustains it as its infrastructure literally goes after Muslims in the streets. They they have trumped up charges against all manner of journalists. Rana Ayub, who's been on this podcast, like can't put her head up without some new tax issue being used against her. Like this is happening. Journalists are being persecuted. The Muslim minority in that country is dealing with a lot of crap. And and this is you know, Modi's clearly on the top of the superstructure that is doing that. Um, that doesn't mean that Modi is all bad. And like Modi, like people will point out, like he's made some good reforms in the economy. He's an important partner on China. Sure, that's all true. But when you react like this, all you have to say is we have more work to do. You know, all we have to say is we're not perfect. Nobody is. We have to do more. Yeah, the, give an inch. The, they won't give an inch. And 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 the fact that they use this kind of drippingly defensive and thin-skinned tone 
to say we are going to come educate you about how perfect everything is in India or shut up because, you know, you only ask this question because you're Pakistani, confirming the bias that you use against people based on their identity in India. Like all you're doing is showing the world that you are exactly what Sabrina was indicating in that question or you are exactly dealing with the kind of problems that Obama talked about in his answer. And and so to me, if you want to be if part of the the kind of aspiration of Modi and the BJP is to be a world class power, right, to be, you know, taken seriously as you should because you are like running this country over a billion people, you need thicker skin than this. I mean, this totally. is ridiculous that, that, that you're this thin-skinned, thin-skinned about everything. I mean, it, come on. It gets people. worse, by the way. There was a top BJP official, this, the, the chief minister of a, a, basically a state, tweeted that there were many Hussein Obama in India itself who needed to be taken care of. So again, doubling down on bigotry and essentially threatening to kill Muslims or kill the president of the United States. Yeah. Former. And this is the problem with like rolling out the red carpet without any criticism at all, because they think that if they just throw these brushback pieces, that are racist brushback, well, we're going to take care of Hussein Obama. Okay, tough guy. Like, why don't you go tweet a few more threats at Muslims? You're, you know, you're, you're, you're such a powerful man. I mean, it, it just makes them look really small, you know, and, yeah. and, and it, it, it's, it proves the point of all the critics. Speaking of uh, thin-skinned leaders, Ben, so we talked last week about Secretary of State Tony Blinken's trip to China, his meeting with Chinese President Xi Jinping, and the hope that this would all lead to more conversations, more communications between the U.S. and China, and sort of a general thawing of tensions. That all got a little bit more complicated last week when, at a fundraiser, President Biden called uh, President Xi a dictator. The longer Biden quote was, uh, the reason why Xi Jinping got very upset in terms of when I shot that balloon down with two boxcars full of spy equipment is he didn't know it was there. That was the great embarrassment for the dictators when they didn't know what happened. The Chinese responded very angrily. They called it a blatant political provocation and quote, extremely absurd and irresponsible. Besides creating headaches for Tony Blinken here. He's probably uh, taking a lot of phone calls. How big a deal do you think that comment was? Like, isn't she a dictator? Who who doesn't know that? Well, I I guess to me, the more peculiar part of the comment was like him seeming to be reading out like an intelligence assessment, you know, that, yeah, like did, does he know, how does he know that Xi Jinping didn't know it was there? Is that because Xi Jinping kind of denied to him that, uh, that he had sent the balloon or is that because he was kind of revealing something like the whole it just felt like he was sharing a little more information than was necessary uh at a fundraiser you know yeah that could have um, been the part that pissed off she more than the dictator line yeah and I, if, if it's a calculated effort to get under his skin that's one thing i i just i can't imagine that like doing that at a fundraiser was like an intentional information <laughs> operation you know um no it is interesting that over the we, we talked about this once or twice before that biden has personalized like criticism of Xi Jinping a fair amount. You know, I'd rather be mm-hmm. me than Xi Jinping or she, the, he's yeah. a dictator. It's kind of funny because in the last campaign, we heard a lot from uh, Biden had spent more time with Xi Jinping than any like person on earth. And, you know, they're, they're such great buddies, you know, so right, the, buds. The, 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 the bromance is definitely faded here. Um, but uh, at the end of the day, whenever these things come up, I, I always have to remind myself that the Chinese government says worse things about Joe Biden all the time. You know what I mean? Oh, absolutely. Um, the Indian government, you know, is threatening to like kill people with the same name <laughs> right. as the last president. So, so 
I think we have to cut our leaders a little slack here. Uh, like they don't have to go all Trump and say absolutely like crazy shit about people. But like, you know, it's it's kind of the thin skin point again. Like, um, you know, totally. the Chinese wolf warrior diplomats, you know, uh, have like imagery of Joe Biden that is no different than like what the Republican Party puts out. Uh, and so for him to every now and then pop off a G, I don't know. It's not that big a deal. And whether he's technically a dictator or not, like. You know, I guess they'd argue Whatever. he's the head of the party. Whatever. He's an autocrat. Like, that's yeah. it is what it is. Yeah. I mean, like, I, I'm with you. Listen, the Chinese can decide whether to get offended or not. Remember when Trump yeah. took a call from the president of Taiwan right after he was elected, breaking with 40 years of diplomatic <laughs> yeah, yeah. tradition before he talked to Xi Jinping? Like, they got over that. They had a relationship. We'll see. I mean, Secretary Yellen is supposed to go to China in July. Hopefully that happens uh, and they don't cancel another trip and sort of to protest this, but you're right. I mean, you know, Biden got asked about this at the press conference by Sabrina, actually. And he, his response was basically like, I said what I said. And so it seems like, you know, he's not gonna walk He doesn't back. give a shit, you know? Yeah, and it, that's, I think that's smart. And your point about choosing is totally right because they control the media too. They can choose to like have their people know that that happened or not, right? Be, exactly. Which kind of proves part of Biden's point, you know? Like, he, you know, it may not be a total dictator, like kind of one man, one rule, like, but, you know, there's aspects of that. And so what? Like, so deal with it. If you if you want to have that kind of control of the system, you're going to get criticized by the president of the United States from time to time. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, really awful story out of the Mediterranean, Ben, where a, a fishing trawler carrying up to 750 migrants and refugees from Pakistan, Syria, Egypt and the Palestinian territories capsized off the coast of Greece on June 14th. Only about 100 of the people on the boat were rescued alive, literally on a super yacht called the Mayan Queen, just like the most dystopian thing possible. Um, There are questions about whether the Greek Coast Guard inadvertently caused this boat to capsize when they attempted to hook a line on it and tow it. The boat had been traveling from Libya and they were heading to Italy. This bunch of asylum seekers trying to get to the EU. The trip was a nightmare before this boat sank. People were running out of food and water. I think like six people were already dead before it capsized. President Obama was asked about this uh, during a recent event. Here's a clip of what he said. There is a, a potential tragedy unfolding with a submarine that is getting, you know, minute to minute coverage all around the world. And it's understandable because obviously we all want and pray that those folks are rescued. But the fact that that's gotten so much more attention than 700 people who sank is... That's that's an untenable situation. Important point well taken there. Since 2020, there have been a bunch of instances of Greek patrol boats pushing migrant boats back into the water. So it's sort of a broader question of the Greek response here. Greek public opinion has turned hard against refugees, which undoubtedly been contributed to the success of far-right parties in this past week's uh, elections. The ruling center-right party got 40% of the vote, but far-right parties won about 13% of the vote, including a new party called the Spartans, which is just sort of like a newer version of the Golden Dawn party that was banned in 2020 for being neo-Nazis, literally. Uh, So the Spartans now have 13 seats in parliament. At the height of its popularity, Golden Dawn only got 7% of the vote, so that's a scary trajectory. So look, all in all, like a story about this global failure to manage conflicts and manage refugee flows and how that leads to horrible human consequences and political consequences. 
I mean, first of all, like I always rooted for the Athenians over the Spartans, like uh, in my ancient history, like war games. But then, uh, and, and Obama, it's funny playing that clip because I was like, a couple times, it, it's such a reminder of the Obama deliberate speaking style where you're like, is the audio going out? And it's like, oh, no, no, he's just speaking very slowly <laughs> and considering his words. But I was in Greece with him at, at the time, and you could sense, like, on the one hand, the the public there is very anti-immigrant, very anti-refugee. Uh, the political party that we've covered a few of these stories recently where they were pushing back boats. Um, you know, there's a trend of them kind of seeming to not give a shit when these tragedies happen uh, and maybe pursuing policies that are making them more likely and feeling no accountability for that because if anything, they're kind of rewarded for it, you know? And it seems like, again, the people that didn't go with like the large, fairly resounding win uh, for the center-right government like went even further right. At the same time, like this is an untenable situation. And so you'd like to think that, first of all, there's a real investigation of what happened here. You can't just let 700 people die and not like get to the bottom of, of how that happened and whether the Greek Coast Guard contributed to it or could have done anything differently. Um, I think, secondly, Europe has a, a, a say here. And, and Europe has kind of been at, 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 at least just kind of winking at this kind of policy. Um, because they want to keep migrants out too, because their publics are tired of it as well. Well, it's not sustainable from a humane standpoint. It's not sustainable given the fact that there's going to continue to be migrants. There, there, there needs to be a rethink of this entire approach. What is happening to try to reduce the flows of people coming in? What is happening to try to have more orderly processing? It's not that different, by the way, from what we're dealing with at our border, you know, with people totally. from Central America. Yeah. Like, can you have like a, a, like their version of an asylum process um, that like at least reduces. You're never going to end these types of desperate uh, people trying to get across um, the water. But can you can you can you put some process around it that reduces that risk? Cut cut down on the smugglers and traffickers that kind of put people on these vessels that are not prepared to hold that many people. Like at a minimum, as with our own border, like they have to be doing more to avert tragedy uh, while trying to think ahead about. How can you manage migration flows in a more humane way? Yeah. Speaking of um, heartless immigration policies, there's a new book out by a guy named Miles Taylor, who is a, a former Trump Department of Homeland Security staffer turned sort of like Trump critic. Uh, anonymous, about how, formerly known as yeah, Anonymous. He was the anonymous op-ed writer in the New York Times. <laughs> um, uh, it talks about how Stephen Miller, who is the Trump advisor, best known for family separation and just for being a monster, argued for having a predator drone fire missiles at a ship full of unarmed migrants that was trying to reach the U.S. This reportedly happened during a conversation Stephen Miller had with the commandant of the Coast Guard. Uh, it's worth pointing out that uh, Stephen Miller denies that this happened. The former Coast Guard commandant says he doesn't remember the conversation. But it would be far from the only sadistic uh, policy pitch that Stephen Miller had while in government. Remember that former Secretary of Defense Mark Esper said that Stephen Miller proposed cutting off ISIS leader Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi's head, dipping it in pig's blood and parading it around as a warning to other terrorists. So it sounds like a fun meeting, fun guy to hang out with, great coworker. Yeah, given that Stephen Miller seems like the kind of guy who like when he was a kid, like use magnifying glasses to like fry like insects, you know, on oh, the sidewalk definitely. in front of his house. If not his siblings. Yeah, this is utterly believable as an anecdote. Like, because he definitely sat around and fantasized chairing meetings in Situation Room and like, you know, drone striking immigrants on the border. Like this definitely happened. Uh, and it's a reminder that among many other things, Steve Miller is a psychopath, you know? And, like, yeah. and you only have to like one look at his dead eyes to understand that. 
No doubt. No doubt. Uh, speaking of psychopaths, Ben, so I've lost count of the number of allegations of fraud and corruption that have been leveled against Israeli Prime Minister Bibi Netanyahu. There's three cases being brought against him. One of them is sort of at trial as we speak. And according to a report in Politico, uh, it featured on Monday testimony from a billionaire Hollywood mogul named Arnon Milchan, who said that his gift giving to the Netanyahu family became so frequent and routine that they developed code words for the gifts. Cigars were called leaves, champagne was called roses, uh, and luxury dress shirts were called dwarves. I was following this little code until we got to the shirts. Um, Milchan said he realized that the nearly $200,000 worth of gifts he'd given the Netanyahu family uh, was excessive when the police opened an investigation. Seems a little late there, buddy. But in exchange, uh, Netanyahu did him favors like contacting uh, former Secretary of State John Kerry for help with a visa, pushing for tax breaks that would have helped Milchan. So Ben, here I think may be the craziest part of this political story, though. Prosecutors demanded that Bibi's wife, Sarah Netanyahu, not make eye contact with Milchan because they were worried she could somehow sway the witness. W- what is happening here? Does this woman practice witchcraft? <laughs> How is eye contact via Zoom, by the way, going to change this guy's testimony? Uh- <laughs> Well, first of all, in the theme of crimes today, um, you know, BB's like a little smarter than Trump because at least he had code words, right? Um, yeah. But the net effect is the same, right? you know. Like if if Trump's thing is like I am committing a crime, I didn't declassify it; it is secret. I should have been showing it to you. BB's is like I should be not taking these gifts from you. That is corrupt. Therefore, we're going to have code words for the gifts. You know, like it's actually just as like totally proving of guilt and, and just as brazen. It's just a little smarter because at least he had the code words. Like if Trump had had some code words for the classified documents, he'd be in uh, BB's league here. I always wonder about how people get to be billionaires, you know, like who seem to be such complete morons. Because like we've already talked about some of the morons that like uh, have all the hot takes on uh, on the war in Ukraine. And we'll actually probably end on the Uyghurs where... Uh, that's one of the All yep. in Pod's greatest moments uh, and its greatest hits album. Um, but in this case, like, how did this guy succeed so fa- fabulously, and yet he he can't withstand the like steely gaze and like wink or, or, or like furrowed brow of Sarah Netanyahu? I can tell you, I've been in rooms with Sarah producer. Netanyahu. He produced uh, Pretty Woman, Bohemian Rhapsody, Mister and Mrs. Smith. So I don't know, Hollywood guy. But yeah, like, what what is she doing to him with these tractor beam eyes? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, seriously. Like, I'm to... <laughs> what are we talking about? Uh, God, Sarah Netanyahu once brought me a martini. Um, or once, or at least, really? like, she didn't bring it to me, but she certainly, like, uh, facilitated uh, my having a martini while Obama and uh, Bibi were, like, Nova fighting about something. Some nerve agent? I don't know. Maybe, maybe the, I've never been the same ever since. Um, or maybe, actually, you know, maybe it is. Maybe if I ever saw her again. She could like make me do things by just looking at me, you know. Yeah, you just be, you yeah. just be buying her cigars, buying her cigarettes. <laughs> she, she mixes you a drink, and the next thing you know, you're like shipping stuff over there. You're you're getting a case of Camel unfiltered, and sending them to Israel, and <laughs> yeah, you don't know why. Um, we should point out, like, less funny, like as this trial is happening, there's been an uptick in violence in the West Bank. Last week, there were these, uh, you know, hundreds of armed Israeli settlers were just rampaging through West Bank towns, 
burning stuff, beating people up. It's this endless cycle of violence. This time it occurred after uh, two Palestinian terrorists, I think Hamas terrorists, killed four Israelis near a West Bank settlement. The Israeli military has been launching increasingly militarized operations in the West Bank. In one case, they were firing missiles from Apache helicopters. I think there was a drone strike. That might have been the first drone strike since 2006. I think it was the first time a helicopter had been deployed in 20 years. So we should mention this because like, this cycle of violence is constant. Uh, but meanwhile, the, the Palestinian Authority uh, leadership is gone. They're just non-existent. And the Israeli government is de facto annexing the West Bank more and more every day. And it's just like increasing the likelihood that something very, very bad is going to happen, especially when the Israeli leadership is, is desperate like Netanyahu to stay out of jail and to keep together this right-wing coalition that could maybe you know prevent him from seeing prison time. Yeah, no, that's right. I mean, they, like it should be pointed out that they're normalizing this kind of brutality. They have been for a very long time. They're normalizing this kind of displacement. But the only other element that's worth noting here that is new is that just like Trump, Trump, it's existential for him that he get elected president so he doesn't go to prison. Like BB's yep. in the same boat. And the more that this case may be closing in on him, the risk of things escalating with the Palestinians or things escalating with him returning to threats to the judicial system, like that, that is very likely to happen if he feels like the the wheels of justice are catching up to him and and Sarah Netanyahu can't make the case go away with her eyes. Yeah. Uh, finally, Ben, last story here before the interview. Uh, Miami Mayor Francis Suarez recently jumped into the Republican presidential primary. You might be asking, who? Uh, fair question. He is a huge crypto booster who created the Miami coin. I think it was supposed to replace taxes maybe by minting coins and selling them. It is now down something like 96% in value. So, oops. Um, Suarez decided to go on Hugh Hewitt's show to demonstrate his foreign policy chops. Let's hear how it went. Put ultimate question, Mayor. Will you be talking about the Uyghurs in your campaign? What, the what? The Uyghurs. What's a Uyghur? Okay, we'll come back to that. Uh, let me, you won't be. You okay. got to get smart on that. And then, and then they come back to it again later. Here's the second clip. You gave me homework, uh, Hugh. I'll, I'll look at what, uh, what was it. What did you call it? A Weeble? The Uyghurs. <laughs> You really need to know about the Uyghurs, Mayor. You got to talk about it every day. Okay. I will. I will talk about. I will. I will search Uyghurs. I'm. I'm a good learner. I'm a fast learner. Uh, Suarez today tweeted that, of course, he knows what the Uyghurs are, but he just didn't catch the pronunciation. For those who don't know, the Uyghurs are a mostly Muslim ethnic minority group in Western China. The Chinese government has thrown more than a million of them in re-education camps where they are often tortured in what has been called a crime against humanity or genocide. The U.S. government actually called it genocide. Ben, did the mayor get your vote? First of all, why is Hugh Hewitt like the place you go to to like demonstrate your foreign policy chops? You know, I like, know. like noted intellect here, uh, like a complete buffoon, Hugh Hewitt. Second, like I like I love his like comeback was like, oh, I didn't catch the pronunciation when he actually repeated the pronunciation completely accurately. Perfectly. Like, Perfectly. what's a Uyghur? <laughs> like he got it right himself in his his comeback. Then there was like, a weird thing that Hugh Hewitt did too, where he's like, "You should be talking about it every day." Um, which was kind of odd too, because like like nothing yeah. about that exchange like made any sense on any level whatsoever. Uh, but it does go to show the reason it matters is the only claim this guy has for running is that he's Mr. Anti-Communist, right? Like because he's you know he's in Miami there, he hates the Cuban Communist Party, right, and, and right. his whole line has always been like we fight communism here in Florida. And so actually, like you really should know about the Uyghurs, particularly if your whole 
campaign is about how terrible communism is because the Uyghurs are the people that are being treated the absolute worst by a communist party in the world. So, you know, a little more homework, um, but uh, I, I'm also like not exactly buying stock in that presidential campaign. Maybe he could go run the Bitcoin city that Bukele is building down in El Salvador. It seems like he has more That's qualification really for that, you know. That's a really good idea. He does have uh, experience running a city into the ground with cryptocurrency. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, Hugh Hewitt is interesting because like, he, he is like one of the most frustrating, shameless defenders of everything Trump does. Just like yeah. Lovett calls them like the intellectual Zambonis who just kind of mop up after him. But he also cares about foreign policy and asks questions. He loves to ask about the Uyghurs. He likes to ask about the nuclear triad and how one would maintain that. He likes to ask about Alger Hiss and whether he was a spy for the Soviet Union. So he has these like hobby horses that I'm glad he asks about, but are very easy to prepare for and still doesn't make it okay to just defend everything Trump did. Because by the way, Trump uh, famously told Xi Jinping that locking up the Uyghurs was the right thing to do and to keep going. We know this because John Bolton told everybody that he did it. The classic thing with Hugh Hewitt, I'm just gonna say, so he was like obsessed with me for a while, like uh, towards the end of the Obama administration. And he, for some reason, he used to call me like the the Metternich of MSNBC or something, which doesn't make any sense. Um, because that, a, what that, a great topical that, reference. Well, it would also kind of make me out to be like smarter than he was saying I was. Uh, it's not, not like Metternich was a dumb guy. And he actually asked me, I, I don't know if I told you, Tommy, to come on and do his show for three hours uh, at the end three of the administration. <laughs> like, or, or, like when my book came out, my publicist called and she's like, I think I have, we have great, like thing will get great publicity. You know, he asked you to do his entire show with him. I'm <laughs> yes. like, you know what? I don't care how many books that would sell. Like I'd rather do anything than Hugh Hewitt's fucking show the whole time. But my favorite thing about Hugh Hewitt is for all his like intellect, I remember Lovett went on that show. Um, yeah. At the beginning of the Trump uh, administration, Mike Flynn was being appointed national security advisor and I guess yep. Lovett had taken some shots at him. So Hugh Hewitt had him on because he was going to like fillet him. And one of his gotcha things to Lovett was like, you're friends with Ben Rhodes and he's so much less qualified than Mike Flynn. Well, look, look at Mike Flynn, right? Like this is what I mean. Like Hugh Hewitt puts him out to be this like serious guy. Like he's Hugh Hewitt, this great intellect. And meanwhile, the guy that he was boosting and like, you know, trying to dunk on Lovett over is now like a full blown QAnon sociopath, you know? So like there's, like Hugh Hewitt is like, he's he's several miles wide in terms of the questions he asked, but he's like a half an inch deep. Yeah, I mean, look, he was the former president and CEO of the Richard Nixon Foundation, <laughs> I think like his <laughs> yeah. library. So, you know, that sort of tells you a lot about uh, yeah. his, his background and values. Uh, <laughs> all right, Ben, <laughs> that's it for the news section. When we come back, you will hear my interview with uh, Evan Novi Williams. He's a really smart sports reporter for Sportico uh, who broke the story about Qatar's sovereign wealth fund buying a 5% stake in three Washington, D.C.-based sports teams. So stick around for that. We're going to talk about sports washing and lots of other great stuff. Did you know that women make up 56% of law students? That's grounds for bragging rights at the dinner table for your conservative uncle who still thinks women belong in the kitchen. It's clear that the future of the legal field is female. So why are so many legal podcasts and reviews authored by men? Hi, I'm Leah Littman. I'm Kate Shaw. And with Melissa Murray, we are the hosts of Strict Scrutiny. Each week, we break down the latest headlines and biggest legal questions facing our country through the lens of diverse voices to give you expert views you won't hear anywhere else. Strict Scrutiny is your guide to the Supreme Court. New episodes drop every Monday, plus bonuses whenever the Supreme Court takes away another one of our rights. Make sure to subscribe to Strict Scrutiny wherever you get your podcasts. Mm-hmm. 
Beyonce, Katanji Brown Jackson, the lady who spent 500 days in a cave. Women are all around us. And this Women's History Month, the Crooked Store is celebrating with a pop-up shop featuring favorites from women of color founded companies. For a limited time, the SheCommerce pop-up shop has everything from delicious goodies to kids books to candles, all from small companies that we love. It is a great way to support women of color while treating a woman in your own life. Maybe that's yourself to a sweet distraction from the endless horrors that we face every single day. Happy Women's History Month to all. Check out what's in stock at crooked.com slash store for this month only. Hi, I'm Erin Ryan, a writer and host of the podcast Hysteria. And I'm Alyssa Mastromonaco, former White House Deputy Chief of Staff and also a host of Hysteria. And this week, we were asked to talk about Women's History Month. And on behalf of women everywhere, okay, fine. Our show, Hysteria, is about the way news and culture impacts women in America every week of the year. From the latest on reproductive rights to the ways pop culture handles women's stories. And not just because it's March, okay? We exist the other 11 months of the year, too. What? Don't... <laughs> uh, you heard it here first. Don't even get us started on our exclusive YouTube series, This Fucking Guy, where we try to figure out how the worst people in America got to be so awful. So if you're looking for a pod that's by the ladies and for everyone, make sure to subscribe to Hysteria wherever you get your podcasts. Joining me today is Evan Novi williams He is a sports business reporter for Sportico. Uh, thank you for joining the show. Thanks for having me, Tommy. So uh, we're here to talk about uh, a topic near and dear to my heart, sports washing. I don't even know if we call it that anymore. It's just sort of foreign conglomerates buying teams, basically. Um, but you guys broke the news that Qatar's sovereign wealth fund is buying a 5% stake in this parent company that owns the Washington Wizards, the Washington Capitals, uh, and the Washington Mystics. It's a NBA, NHL, and WNBA franchises. I believe this is the first time a sovereign wealth fund has bought into an NBA team, and it might be Qatar's first investment period in U.S. pro sports. What do we know about this deal, like how it came to be? And I'm guessing it's not a coincidence that it's uh, the, the focus is on Washington, D.C. to start. Yeah, I, th I think the most interesting place to start is uh, just kind of macro level. Sports teams in the U.S. are so expensive. They're getting so expensive right now. A, a decade ago, you could have bought an NBA team for a couple hundred million dollars. The most recent one just sold for $4 billion. And when you have assets... Was that the Charlotte Hornets? No. Didn't Michael Jordan <laughs> oh, sorry, like, do a terrible most job? Recent. Yeah, that was the... I'm talking about the Phoenix Suns, but... Uh, right, I'm sorry, you're the, right. The Hornets right. also just sold for multiple billion. And Jordan 10x's investment despite doing a terrible job. That, that's that's how... Uh, that, that's why these assets are so great, right? Because you don't have to do a great job and you get a, and you get a great exit. Um, and, and, and owners are realizing that when you have multi-billion dollar assets... Just the pool of people that have the money and the interest in buying those or buying into those gets smaller and smaller. So if you're running out of buyers, uh, you have to expand the pool of buyers. And in the past two years, every major U.S. league except the NFL hmm. has suddenly opened its doors to institutional money. And that's private equity funds primarily so far. But it's also endowments, and, and as we're talking about here, it's sovereign wealth funds. So, so all of this is essentially dates back or stems back to this idea that we're just running out of rich guys that can buy teams. And uh, if you want your valuations to keep appreciating, you need more buyers, and uh, institutional money is, is the answer to that right now. 
Oh my God, you just said endowments. If the Harvard endowment buys like the Boston Red Sox, I will I will be more upset than the Saudis. I'll flip over this table. I would not be shocked if at some point, uh, it's funny, we joke about the, the Harvard one and, and Boston sports teams as well, just because it makes sense. But uh, it, it's proven to be a, a bulletproof investment. It's been 50 years, I think, since a professional US team sold for less than it was bought for. Uh, wow. they, they really are, um, at least right now, uh, they have proven to be fantastic investments. Yeah. So the NBA, you, you mentioned this, the NBA changed its rules last year to allow for the sort of limited foreign investments. They're now going to review the deal. Do you think they'll have any issues? I, I cannot imagine a Ted Leonsis and Monumental and the Wizards getting this far in and, and not knowing that the NBA uh, was okay with this. Uh, so I would be shocked if anything happens in the next few weeks to uh, to, to squash this deal. I think that, again, when, when you get to the point of, of putting ink on paper, I think they have a pretty good idea that the NHL and, and the NBA are both going to be going to be fine with this. Um, and, and look, the, the, there's obviously, you know, there's some controversy here and we're, I'm sure we're going to get into it. Um, but the NBA uh, is no stranger to a lot of that controversy uh, over the past few years in terms of its relationships with foreign governments. And uh, I'm sure Ted and, and, and everyone at the NBA also was very aware how some people were going to feel about this news. As long as the Amir doesn't flash his gun on an Instagram live twice, it will be okay. Well, I mean, so as you noted, the NBA, they've been forward leaning when it comes to speaking out on social justice issues. In particular, they let players speak their minds at a time when other franchises weren't or other leagues. I mean, um, in 2017, the NBA pulled the All-Star game out of Charlotte after North Carolina passed that bathroom bill that required transgender people to use public restrooms that matched the sex on their birth certificates. Uh, not who they were that day. Um, has there been any pushback on Qatar as an investor, given its laws criminalizing same-sex relations from any of the leagues? I, I'm sure there is pushback. When, when the NBA, you mentioned a year ago, they kind of expanded this institutional money thing to include sovereign wealth. Uh, what I always understood from talking to folks at the league was that it was going to be a case-by-case basis. It didn't mean that anyone, any any pool of money anywhere in the world could just buy into an NBA team just because one owner wanted it to happen. And 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 because of that, I, I, honestly, I'm kind of surprised that, that QIA is the first one to be doing this. There are certainly less controversial sovereign wealth funds out there that, that you imagine probably are interested in owning an NBA team or a piece of one uh, that, that, that might have gone first. Um, Cutter, I think around the World Cup, and I know you guys have, have done a lot around that, mm-hmm. that there was no, no, no shortage of coverage about some of the human rights concerns that, that happened in, in the run-up to that event. Um, and Adam Silver, the commissioner of the NBA, uh, it's funny, w- was asked about this exact topic uh, a few weeks ago when the Live PGA Tour commercial merger happened, right? And there are some similarities and some key differences between that huge business story and and, and this one. Um, but one of the things that Adam said, which I thought was interesting, was that uh, he had faith in the in the media to essentially, it, when, when deals like this happen, when news like this happens, to highlight the the the, the other parts about maybe some of the uh, the less great things about some of these foreign governments and 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 where the money's coming from. Uh, so it's certainly something that the NBA has has thought about, uh, and I'm sure there's other NBA owners that are looking at this deal and saying man, I'm glad the Wizards are first and we can announce a deal of ours in in a few months or in a few weeks, even whatever it looks like. Um, I think the more of these that happen, I think the smaller the outcry is going to be for sure. Yeah. And look, you know, the the World Cup was especially egregious because you had all the human rights considerations and the treatment of LGBT people. But then on top of that, 
Qatar had to build all the infrastructure for the cup and they do it essentially with slave labor. You know, there are some estimates from the Guardian that some of the 6,000 some odd people, foreign laborers died in the process. Obviously, that won't be an issue here if you're just buying a 5% stake in an NHL team. Definitely. And and this is a, we should say, it's, it's a passive investment. The NBA, when it set up these rules, was very clear. Uh, th- these institutional investors, and whether that's private equity or, or QIA or sovereign wealth funds, they're not allowed to have board seats. They're not allowed to have any actual say in the governance of the teams. Many minority partners, and I'm not privy to the actual details of this one, but many minority partners also don't have full rights if they wanted to sell the stake later on. There's a very good chance that if QIA in five years decided we don't want to be invested in Monumental anymore. It might it mm-hmm. might just go back to Monumental's other other shareholders. So so these are limited in a lot of different ways. They're limited investments, at least right now. Uh, I think the obvious question there is if if if, if things keep appreciating in value, at some point do we see institutional uh, investors buying controlling stakes in teams? It's certainly possible. We're not we're not there right now. But uh, again, the, in some ways, I think the writing has been on the wall here. For a while, and, and Tommy, it's interesting. The, 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 there's a lot of ways in which sovereign wealth funds are already their fingerprints are all over American sports. They're right. all over the American economy as a whole, right? But the the these sovereign wealth funds are investing in the same private equity funds that are buying teams, and they're less investing alongside billionaire sports team owners in their other businesses. And they're in the U.S. equity markets, owning pieces of teams like the Knicks and the Rangers and, and the Braves, which are all publicly traded in, in various ways. They're investing in sports adjacent companies like Fanatics and, and CAA, for example. There, mm-hmm. There's so many other ways in which sovereign wealth funds are already uh, doing a lot of financial work in, in, in U.S. sports. This is just the closest proximity we've seen between a sovereign wealth fund and a, a major team in, in, in the NBA or the NHL. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I mean, some of the coverage of this purchase by the Qataris suggested that this is sort of the first of many deals that are brewing uh, from sovereign wealth funds. Do you think this is a situation where uh, somebody goes first and then there's sort of a, a flood of foreign cash into the, these leagues? I think the floodgates are open. Yeah, I think I think we're going to see a lot of this. And just to put in perspective, the QIA is, it's almost $500 billion under management. And, and to compare that to the wealthiest humans in America, that's essentially exactly the net worth of Bill Gates, Elon Musk, and Jeff Bezos combined, the three wow, richest yeah. people in America. So again, when you're looking for for richer pools of capital, uh, it, it's really on a totally different scale. The size of PIF, the Saudi Arabian fund that is that is is doing what it's doing in golf, QIA, which is invested here, and there's a number of others. It's just we're talking about a pool of money that doesn't exist in the hands of any human on the planet. Yeah, don't even get me started on the Norwegians. They're sitting on. They're, uh, they're the kings. Yeah, they're the king the kings of the roost. Are the boatloads yeah. of cash. <laughs> yeah. Well, so look, yeah. I mean, I guess I'm naive. It d- it did seem like for a little while people were worried about sports washing, or at least you know, sort of offended by it in some instances. The PGA was the leader uh, of the charge in terms of criticizing the Saudi sovereign wealth fund and their investment in the Live Golf Tour. That was until they caved and then merged with Live after a year of like basically accusing them of doing 9-11. Um, do you think like is, is the era of companies even pretending to care about human rights records of places like Saudi or Qatar? Is that over? It's, it's such a good question. And again, just because the, the, the sovereign wealth funds are everywhere already, I, th- I think it's there, there are people in the NBA and, and around 
U.S. sports that feel like this is honestly no different than than than, than the other ways that I was describing. And I think there's an obvious kind of other side to that point, which is again, this is the most proximate we've seen a sovereign wealth fund and its logo and a, a U.S. sports team and its logo, right? So there's definitely a way to look at this investment as uh, some kind of new ground that is being broken. Um, I, I do think, and the NBA obviously had this, this this huge issue with China a few years ago that, as you know better than most people, became this political football, to mix my sports metaphors, uh, that, that, that really did affect the league and affect its business overseas. Um, I, I think that sports team owners are probably realizing that, yeah, there's a there's probably a few years in here where these deals are going to be controversial. That when the PGA announces it's combining its 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 commercial uh, assets and and taking money exclusively from from Saudi Arabia, that there are a lot of people that that that, that freak out about that. But that the moral uh, authority starts to wane a little bit. And again, I, I would not be shocked if there are let's say there's ten of these deals in the next year. If if the kind of outcry about it and the, and the fears of sports washing just kind of incrementally disappear as he, and I know this is really cynical, uh, just disappear as, as each and each successive deal gets announced. Yeah. I mean, look to your point about the, the NFL being kind of the only holdout preventing these kinds of deals from happening. I mean, like who could afford the Dallas Cowboys? What are they worth now? Like $10 billion? It's, 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 this is, this is probably the topic that at Sportico we talk about the most right now because the, the commanders are for sale right now. Another DC team, um, some of the richest men in the world are involved in the ownership group that's buying the commanders. And they have actually struggled to put together the financing to, to get that $6 billion deal done. And the NFL, as I mentioned, it, it's the only league that hasn't done this yet. I think that's just because they haven't had to. And if the NBA, if the NFL was to go through a say, if the Dow- Cowboys hit the market right now, you're right, Tommy, it's a, it's a $10 billion asset. Maybe, maybe that's a little high, but wow. the, the amount of people that have 10 billion in cash to get a deal done, there's nobody really. Maybe Jeff Bezos would be the only one. So I would expect the NFL at some point to change its rules. I just think it's going to take a sale that goes horribly wrong or a process by which there there is no billionaire waiting in the wings to get that deal done. I, I don't think the NFL is, it's certainly, I don't think, standing on any kind of moral high ground here. I think it is oh, more, no. <laughs> yeah, it's just a, it's a necessity. And, and again, the minute a NFL owner says, you mean my team is going to stop appreciating in value unless we change the rules to let private equity funds and sovereign wealth funds buy into teams. The minute that happens, I think you see those rules get changed pretty quickly. Yeah. And look, the, the Roger Goodell, the head of the NFL, the commissioner, he lives to serve the owners. Uh, and if they can think they can make much more money on the sale of these teams or just inflate the price of their assets, I'm sure they'll do it. Also, Jerry Jones ain't going to live forever, folks. I mean, you know, these teams are going to move. The, the NFL, it's such an interesting, one of the most bulletproof American businesses, I think, out there. Um, but but the NFL teams, they trade so infrequently and they, they sell so uh, infrequently. NBA, there, there's a controlling stake sale, it feels like every like four or five months almost. The NFL, there's been, I think in the past decade, there's been three teams that have sold, this is an amazing stat, but but it always wow. blows my mind. Of the 32 current NFL owners, uh, there are more of them that bought their team, earlier family members, bought their team for $25,000 or less than bought their team for more than a billion dollars. Oh my God. That's just- That is it, incredible. There's just so many ownership groups that go back to the 30s or go back to the 40s when you could buy teams for $100 or $500 or whatever it is. And, and then compare that with the NBA where- so many of the of, of the NBA franchises have traded in the past in the past decade or so. It's just a different animal. And again, the, the NFL, I think, by virtue of 
having so infrequent a, a, a controlling stake sale, they just don't have to confront a lot of these economic realities that other leagues like the NHL or NBA just have to confront sooner because they're having so many different transactions. Yeah, and for every like great family or ownership group like the the Rooney family, there are NFL owners who look really rich on paper because they own this thing that's super valuable, but they actually don't have any cash to bring in new players. So these franchises suck for decades. 100, 100%. Yeah. The, the Rooney's, I'm sure you have experience with, with the Rooney family as well in Washington. Yeah. They're, they're a great example. There, there's a number, again, there's a number of teams that have, that have, that, that have had the same owners for, for 80 years. Right. And, and you're right. The, 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 they're not, they're not Steve Ballmer buying the Clippers. This is just a, a family that had an asset that suddenly became super valuable. Um, and, and again, we're not just talking about, you know, in, 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 as we talk about these economic forces, we're not just talking about the control stakes. We're also talking about the minority stakes. Right. And if the Rooney's wanted to take 10 percent of the Steelers off the table and, 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 and get someone to invest five hundred million dollars or whatever that would cost, probably something right around there, um, they might have a hard time selling that. Right. That, that would be that would be a hard stake to sell, because when you're a minority owner, you just don't you don't have that many rights. Right. Tommy, if you wanted to buy five percent of the Red Sox. It's just a really expensive season ticket when it comes when it comes down to it, right? You're not <laughs> exactly you're not making right. decisions about about players, even though I'm sure you probably want to. You're not you're not voting on board decisions, things like that. It's it, it's a passive stake, and if a lot of people don't want to park that much money into something uh, that even though it may be fun to own, you're just not doing that much with. Yeah, that basically you get you get tickets, and the players have to pretend to be nice to you. I bet that's kind of it. And look, if you're one of these owners who've had a team for a long time and you want to hand it down to your kid, the taxes on that, the estate tax is probably a pretty big hit and makes it challenging. Really hard. And and, and depending on who's in the White House, uh, th- those, estate, <laughs> those estate tax rules change a little bit. And we saw with the turnover a few years ago from President Trump to President Biden, uh, a lot of sports teams trying to figure out what the implication was there. Is there shares that I want to give down to, to, to my kids now as opposed right. to in a year? There's, there's so much different interesting tax machinations. And this is true, obviously, in, in every business, not just in sports. But uh, owners are definitely thinking about that as well. Let's keep those taxes high, people, at least the estate tax. So listen, you know, I worked in D.C. for a long time. I saw the way Gulf countries would dump money into lobbying. They would dump money into think tanks, all kinds of different ways to peddle influence. They would throw parties for people. When I saw that, you know, the first investment was in uh, three DC-based teams, I thought more soft power, more chance for influence peddling. Is that fair, or do you think this is more like Ted Leonsis, the owner of the parent company of these three teams, maybe has these long relationships? I'm of two minds here. I I don't think it's a coincidence that the first big sovereign wealth investment in U.S. sports happened in D.C. It just just can't be. There's so many reasons why a country like Qatar – uh, in addition to, 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 I'm sure, wanting to own a piece of, of these assets, also like the idea of owning a very high-profile investment in uh, the nation's capital. There's so much there that makes sense. Uh, one thing I will say about Monumental, Ted has proven year in, year out, he is willing to push the envelope on a lot of these things. I would mm-hmm. consider him to be one of the more progressive uh, sports team owners out there from a business standpoint. He built, I think before a lot of other owners realized this was the future, he built this sports empire, right? Where it's not just teams, but he owns Capital One Arena where the, the Wizards and the Capitals play. He owns NBC Sports Washington, the, the the media network. He understood that there was a flywheel here. And the way to really build the, the future sports ownership group 
was to have these teams and then put media, put real estate, put technology around it uh, and really help them all grow in concert. Uh, so I do think that Ted, I'm not surprised also that Ted would be the first to do this or would be on the cutting edge of, of, of dipping his toe into this, into this new opportunity. So, so there's kind of two things there. I'm, I'm curious for you, Tommy, that I imagine, did you go to sporting events a lot when you were working in Washington? The, the, the thing that I'm always curious about is, is I just hear a lot about senators and congressmen and congresswomen and Supreme court justices that go to nationals games or go to capitals games. Mm-hmm. Um, and I imagine there's a part of this that is also enticing to QIA also in that you just get some of these exact people in these power roles coming actually through the building that you're investing in as well. Yeah. I didn't go to a lot of games because I don't know. I just was stuck at work probably but like there was a there was a huge scandal where there was a basically a lobbyist named Jack Abramoff who was buying off members of Congress and senators etc by essentially having boxes at Redskins games and was doing a lot of hmm. uh, business uh, through sports so I do think like there will undoubtedly be sort of a big element of soft power in terms of inviting people who are in these positions there are ethics rules that sort of govern the price of a ticket you can accept for free but that doesn't matter if you're not in government proper or not an elected official necessarily. Yeah. It, it, there's so many, there's so many different reasons why people invest in teams. The Ted Turner bought the Braves so long ago because he needed content for his media empire. And, and right. Bruce Ratner was involved in buying the nets because there was a real estate development opportunity next door that he wanted to be a part of. So I think almost every sports investment in some capacity is, this is a good asset and I'm going to have fun owning this. And then also this does X or Y for the other parts of my business uh, that is also really invaluable. So, so I think there's always kind of multiple parts of, of, of an investment, certainly one of this scale. So final question for you. If this were the, the world's worst uh, video game, the, the final boss here of sports watching, in my mind, would be the Saudis getting the 2030 World Cup. <laughs> um, they're bidding. They've kind of bought off Lionel Messi, you know, the greatest soccer player of all time, to be one of their spokespeople, even though his uh, home country is a competing bid. W- where do you think we stand on that? I mean, like FIFA is the most viable ent- sports entity out there, so... I, 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 there is no length at which, uh, I, I would expect for, for, for international sport and, and the Olympics and, and, and FIFA, I kind of group together in this way. Uh, nothing would surprise me in that regard. The, the, and, and, and this, this could very well be the, the end goal here, right? The, yeah. what, what, what PIF is doing to invest in, in, in global, the PIF is going to control professional golf or, or partially control professional golf moving forward. If, if this PGA merger gets done, um, that's not the only asset that I know PIF is, is, is sniffing around in terms of us sports. They're already doing a lot in, in fight sports, for example. Um, yeah, there, there, there's a good chance that, that all of this is a coordinated effort to try to make something like the Olympics take off. And, and, and the Qatar world cup, uh, I think for, for as much as, I think here in the U.S., media-wise, I think maybe yeah. people would be surprised. I think if you are, if the goal was to get more Middle Easterners to want to go to Qatar or more Europeans to want to go to Qatar, I think uh, I think it was a massive success for for, for 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 the for the country, for the government, for the host committee, all that. So yeah, I think these big tentpole sporting events, just like the big tentpole sports teams, uh, if you can if you can invest in them, if you can host them. Again, there's so many ancillary business benefits uh, to doing that, and and nothing would surprise me with the 2030 uh, Olympics and and subsequent World Cups as well. Yeah, uh, I, I agree with you. I mean, I think there was a lot of great coverage in the lead up to the World Cup about their human rights record and about the treatment of workers. But ultimately, when the game started, uh, that's what people focused on, and everyone always kind of knew that. 
Evan, thank you so much for doing the show. Where can folks follow you and find your work? Yeah, so I'm on Twitter at Novi underscore Williams. Uh, my company is Sportico, S-P-O-R-T-I-C-O. Uh, we cover the business of sports. So anything with a big dollar sign, any sponsorships, media deals, team sales, you can get it at Sportico. Excellent. Well, congrats on the big scoop and thanks for doing the show. Thanks, Tommy. Thanks again to Evan Novi Williams for joining the show. Thanks again to Hugh Hewitt for uh, firing fastballs. And uh, I don't know, thanks again to Donald Trump for just giving us tons of content. really uh, incriminating content. That is uh, a shocking tape. Thanks to Alexander Lukashenko for, you know, his, his, <laughs> his service. You know, like, You're right. That that press conference, I watched a bunch of it. It really did have a Sasha Baron Cohen, the dictator. Yeah, vibe. Yeah, just like yeah. completely absurd. These poor guys, these poor generals are trying not to fall asleep on like hour four of his press yeah, avail. Yeah. We're getting to specific detail. He's like, Vladimir called me a ten ten. I called him back at ten fifteen. It was just like that in depth. High point of that guy's life, man. Yeah, literally, literally. Uh, all right, guys. Talk to you next week. See ya. Pod Save the World is a Crooked Media production. Our executive producers are me, Tommy Vitor, Ben Rhodes, and Michael Martinez. Our producer is Haley Muse. Our associate producer is Ashley Mizuo. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick, Kyle Seglin, Charlotte Landis, and Vasilis Futopoulos are our sound engineers. Thanks to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Phoebe Bradford, and Milo Kim, who upload our episodes and videos to YouTube every week. And check out the Pod Save the World uh, YouTube account. Thanks to Saul Rubin for production support.